Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. Grandma, congratulations to you also. You're standing right in front of me and I, I missed it. James 4, James 4. Make sure we welcome those who are still watching from home for whatever reason that might be, shut-ins, people under the weather, or maybe people traveling this Columbus Day weekend, and uh, hope that uh, the word will be a blessing and the entire service uh, will be a, be a blessing. So good to see you out this morning. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. James 4. As we uh, begin this chapter, I want to remind you that God does not condemn weak people. He doesn't condemn people for striving and struggling, but not always maybe what they think in their life of succeeding in the walk of faith. God does not condemn weak people who are struggling, but instead invites them to go deeper into his love. And as they go deeper to find the joy that is indeed promised. I want to remind you that uh, when we confess our sins, it is not finding out how bad we are, but instead how good the love of God actually is. And so this is the big idea for the sermon today. It's this incredibly assuring truth that Paul states over and again in the book of Romans and that James makes clear in verse 6 of chapter 4 that God gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. He is opposed to the proud, be sure, but to the humble, he is giving grace. To help us uh, locate that greater grace, uh, we need uh, to ask a question. Uh, those of you that have, been, have come on the Wednesday night focus on James might recall this from a few Wednesday nights ago. Uh, the uh, book I referenced, Questions and uh, Rhetoric in the Greek New Testament by Douglas Estes, he writes this about the use of questions. He says the potency of questions to persuade an audience is unmatched. We think we best persuade people by ordering them around. Or maybe with nuance, suggesting, or enticing. 
But I think, especially in the scriptures, and certainly true in life, that a question, a well-thought-out, well-placed question, has a way of persuading people. Estes goes on to write, whether a question actually expects a verbal response or intends the one asked to do some private, quiet, soul-searching, it is a powerful linguistic tool. And so James 4 begins with four questions that, when considered, are powerful. The Spirit uses these questions to search our inner being and then, through the questions, persuades us to lean fully into God who in Christ Jesus is giving greater grace. I think on one hand, these questions can have a devastating effect on those who maybe have what we would call a surface view of what it means to be in Christ, to use Paul's terminology there. For many growing up in Christian America, I pray this, of course, is not true about us, but for many growing up in Christian America, these questions that James poses are rarely considered, especially on a deeper level. Look at verse number one. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Question two in verse One, again, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. The third question he places in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And then again in verse number 5. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Those For questions, for many Christians, are just treated on a surface level. I imagine, and this is no, uh, you know, um, negative against reading your Bible through. I, I do believe it's a really helpful discipline. But how many people, in haste to read their Bible through, read questions like these here in James 4... You say, well, i got to read the rest of the assigned text. Fine. But then don't ever go back and consider them on a deeper level. Because what your focus is on is completing the task. I've got to read my Bible through. And so for many uh, Christians, there is not a place where they give time for the Spirit to search the deeper part of their soul to persuade them with questions like the ones that James poses. Another reason we don't really do this is kind of this natural tendency within us to resist questions that actually search the deeper parts of our lives. I mean, isn't it natural to resist someone digging into our lives? I... I remember reading, uh, actually, um, a Jesuit, uh, Ignatius of Loyola, said, where, where you were resisting God in prayer, 
is most likely the place that God wants to do his work. I thought, well, that's really insightful. Where we resist the Spirit searching our soul through the use of questions may be the very place that God is wanting to do a greater work in us, but we, we resist this. It's a natural thing to resist it. But, but I, and I think there's another reason, and that is that much of American Christianity is influenced more by the thinking of this world. Many Christians truly are more of a friend of the world and the way the world thinks, which is hostility with God, than the way that the scripture would present itself and God's concerns in a very straightforward way. You know, please always be reminded that most of the books published under the Christian section are not much more than Christian pop psychology that marketers and publishing houses push, kind of hope that they'll catch on and create another Christian celebrity and then you can buy the trinkets and all the things that go along with it. Most publishing houses are not publishing books intended to help Christians do a deeper searching of the soul with questions like James would pose for us. But in fact, James does intend for these questions to be considered on a much deeper level. And he, and he does it so that this greater grace might then come into our lives. Because what does God promise? He promises greater grace to sinners who are conflicted, to sinners who are struggling because in their members the war is, is being, being waged and their prayers are distorted by asking with you know, wrong motives. And so James wants us to ponder these questions and then he does that in a way by following up with three points of application that are intended to help us think more deeply about the questions. The points of application in the New American Standard version, the one I'm using for this series, are uh, highlighted by the word therefore. You see it in verse number four. So you have adulterers and you have adulteresses that are friends with the world, creating hostility with God. Therefore, if you wish to be a friend of the world, you're actually making yourself an enemy with God. Wow. That's a point of application that helps us then understand what's going on inside of us. Look at verse number six. We have this great promise. He gives greater grace. Therefore, it says what? God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to those who are making the, the world their friend and counsel and thinking and, and direction. But, therefore, he also promises to give grace to those that are humbled. And you have it again in verse number 7. Submit, therefore, to God. And as you resist the devil through submitting to God, the devil flees from you. As we think about 
pulling this text forward and we drop it into this room, we think about these weaknesses, these, these gaps that often exist in our lives and our discipleship. Most of you know our oldest son Jesse was stationed in England with the Air Force for a number of years and Ron and I had the chance to go visit and we remember you know, getting on the tube, the train there and, 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 and uh, the, the automated voice on the loudspeaker would say, mind the gap, mind the gap. Why? Because between the platform and the train, there's a space and if you get in the gap, you lose your leg. Mind the gap. That, that, has, that has just sounded in my ears, you know, over the few years since we've been there, that in my discipleship, in our discipleship, there are gaps that are very dangerous. They're lethal to our discipleship. And so James intends for us to take serious, then, this idea of these questions that we need to sit down and allow the Spirit, then, to use the Scripture to search our souls. But this is a point of resistance, isn't it? We consider ourselves too busy. We, again, we got to get through the Bible in a year, or we have to read this book, or we have to be over here doing this or that. And we have all this, you know, reasoned out, you know, busyness, and rarely finding time for our souls. It's one of the reasons over the last five years or so, I've tried to develop in my own life and suggested developing as a church the Lenten season. If for no other reason, we, we just say, you know, like, there's got to be some time in the year when we're quiet and pray. Where we say, like, these weeks are vitally important for the, for the good of our souls. You see, because we do resist the work of the Spirit who wants to search us and know us. Again, the place of prayer that you resist is often the place God wants to do, do his work. But I think in this text, James also gives us another reason why we struggle to allow the Spirit to search us and bring us to this place of greater grace. And that is we really don't have an understanding of practices that then make room for the Spirit to show our sins and then to do actually something about them. Look at verse number 7 again. If we submit therefore to God and we resist the devil, he will indeed flee from us. And as we draw near to God, in verse 8, he will draw near to us. As we cleanse our hands, sinners, and purify our hearts, double-minded, as we are miserable and mourn and weep and our laughter turn to mourning and our joy to gloom and as we humble ourselves in the presence of God what does he promise to do and to verse number 10 yeah he's going to exalt us he's going to lift it up lift us up there in verses 7 through 10 are outlined by James what we should call or think of as practices things that we do on a regular basis that then bring us into the Spirit's work more deeply, searching our souls. As I've examined, you know, other expressions of the Christian faith over the years, I, I've, I've been interested in the way that a lot of the liturgical practices work in the physicality of their worship experience 
or in private practice. Uh, things that, you know, Baptists or evangelicals tend not to do. The kneeling, the, the kneeling benches, the genuflecting, the, the, the crossing of oneself. The, the idea that there is a physical attachment to our interaction with God. That when we come before God, we're not just in the mind, kind of in this abstraction of thought, you know, out there somewhere thinking. But there, we actually are physically engaged. And, according to James, emotionally engaged. The last thing American society and culture wants you to do is to be miserable and mourn. I mean, that, that's, that's why they have easy credit. That's why there's a Dunkin' Donuts on every corner. Feel bad? There it is. Fast food? There it is. Amazon? There it is. But you see, to be a friend of the world is to be at hostility with God. And whatever your drug of choice might be, to take away the feeling of sadness... You know, it doesn't have to be food or shopping. Whatever it is. That thinking, the way the world reflects itself, is hostility with God. But when you humble yourself, you draw near to God, you look at your hands literally cleansing them, you look at your heart literally, you look at your mind that's become doubled up, and then you say to yourself, maybe I actually do need to be miserable. Now, it doesn't mean you have to make other people miserable. You know, we know enough miserable people, right? That's not what he's talking about, though. That, that, that you take time in your life reflecting in the deeper ways that the Spirit is working, that you actually mourn, that you actually weep, that you, you know, you're not just trying to find always laughter to take away your sadness, but you actually embrace the idea then of laughter being turned to mourning and joy being turned to gloom. Now that doesn't mean you do this all the time, every single moment of every single day. But again, if you take serious what is recommended in James 4, and you allow the Spirit to take the Scriptures and to dig deep into your life, one of the natural practices that would come out of that is a penitent attitude towards God that gets expressed in the physicality of your life, in your mind, certainly in your emotions, when you actually grapple with your sin. When you actually deal with the deeper things that are presented in your life. If, if we truly desire to know this greater grace, then let's not resist the uh, deeper examination of our lives. If we truly want to open our hearts to the Spirit of God, who then, through the word, shows us our sins. Let us take up the practices. This is how God has designed grace to enter into our lives. Because he resists the proud. As we said last week, oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, it's not that bad. See, God resists that. Or we say, oh, I don't feel good. I'm going to go take, you know, a shopping trip. Or I'm going to hit up Dunkin' Donuts. Or whatever it is. I don't mean to knock shopping and donuts today whatever it is whatever it is all right i could go on and on with all those things that i do you know that i don't want to get personal here but whatever it is um that that we say no i'm going to resist the devil there 
and I'm going to look to God. And if it means a season of mourning, a season of gloom, where there's no joy or laughter, I'm going to humble myself in the presence of the Lord, and I'm going to lean into his grace and pray that, you know, the end of verse number 10 is, is true. <laughs> that there will come a season then when I'm lifted up out of that and into joy and laughter and donuts and all the stuff that, you know, are good, are good. Now, this connection with verse number 11, actually, you know, 1 through 10, and then verse number 11 and 12, I have to admit, it's a bit tricky to work out. I almost didn't do it, and I was going to send a note to Jude and say, Jude, it's on you. <laughs> Good luck, you know. Uh, but I thought, no, because I, I think if I dig a little deeper, there will be a connection there. He says, don't speak. So you have humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. He'll exalt you. Don't speak against one another, brethren. And he he. he he takes this back into family language. Now, again, I, I don't think 1 through 10 is just an individual exercise. Because James is writing a family letter. So there was a way that 1 through 10 works as a family, just as we learned last Wednesday night when you get to chapter number 5. And, um, you know, we're encouraged to confess our sins one to another. We're talking about a practice that isn't practiced in the church. There, there it is. So, so I don't think James is saying, you know, this is all about your own individual discipleship. But as a family, together, let's let the Spirit do a deeper work within us. Let's have seasons in which we grapple with our sins. But then let's remember as we do those things to not speak against one another. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And then James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and destroy. But who are you who judges, who judge your neighbor? You see, if we keep in mind that James has made the two books of the law foundational to his letter, it will really help us understand how 11 and 12 work within the text. The two books of the law are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 1 through 5, commandments 6 through 10, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, work as two books. And James has included this all throughout his letter. The purpose of soul searching, the purpose of penitence before God, then is to free us to obey the law of God to all of its fullness. So that we are not judging one another, that we recognize there is actually only one lawgiver, and we are living under him in true obedience and in such a way that we love him and we love one another. Again, this statement in, in verse number 5, that the Spirit jealously dwells within us. Do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That point, again, isn't just an individual expression. 
It is a family reality. And as a family, you know what we often have a tendency to do is to misuse the law of God. We have a tendency to use it as a club. We have a tendency to beat other Christians up with it. And what James says, hey, you know what? If you're doing that, eventually you're going to assault God, the lawgiver, with his own law. That's that's how insidious self-righteousness can be. That's how damaging a misuse of God's law can be. You know, part of the phrase... In verse 12, and I was, I was really helped with this yesterday. I was struggling with this sermon and was distracted with some other things. And I just stopped and I prayed. I said, man, I just, there's something here I'm missing. And I was really grateful that some insight, insight came. And I, and I thought about this phrase in verse 12, the one who is able to save and destroy it. It had a familiar ring to me. And I, I kind of just stopped and I prayed about it. And then I, I remembered That comes really close to one of the accusations hurled against Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. Matthew records it for us when the mockers were saying, he saved others. He himself, he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and then then we'll believe him. But you know, Matthew doesn't just leave it as generic mockers. Instead, he tells us that the people who are saying these words, the mockers, are the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and then he includes the rebels who were crucified around Jesus. In other words, fellow Jews, people who were considered to be brothers in the Jewish faith. Now, I don't know, I'm not saying that that's what James has in mind when he wrote that, but I do think that we can draw a line to this. And the warning is so true. There hanging on the cross is the lawgiver. And the people who were to be under the law are using it as a club to beat him up. And we should not think that that isn't lived out in congregational life as well. Think, I mean, just think about this. For three years, the lawgiver walked among his people. He he provided them every opportunity to have their souls searched. Over and again, he acts with grace and he acts with mercy toward them. But what do they do? They take the very law that was intended to convict them of their own sins and lead them to repentance They misuse it, and they convict the lawgiver as a lawbreaker. And they nail him to a cross. They misjudge their neighbor and condemn him. Now, if you're serious about letting the Spirit search your soul, not just those four questions, but do a deep search When have we, when have I, when have you misused the law 
to club somebody, to beat somebody, to misjudge them. And, and even, and even, to get to the point where we are so proud that we use it against God himself, the lawgiver. But remember that it was through the misuse of the law by the people who rebelled against Jesus and put him on a cross that salvation came. That God is always able to overcome sin with greater grace. There, there is never a time in all of human history, your sin or my sin or anyone's sin, that is more powerful than the grace of God. For, for in the death of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, we see grace working more powerfully to overcome the sins of God's people, the sins, our conflicts, our misuse of the law. That, that death of Christ saves us then from the penalty of our own law-breaking. And in the darkness of his death, what do we see? We see grace working powerfully to overcome the war within us. And that's what grace does. And that's what Jesus did when he humbled himself and put himself in a place to be hung on a cross, falsely accused, so that salvation would indeed come. So brothers and sisters, it is true that this passage of James 4 has questions that should pierce our very souls. And I hope that they do. But this passage is also filled with grace that brings hope and it brings victory to the deepest conflicts that are within us because he does indeed give greater grace. Greater grace for all of our sins. And so we are invited this morning. We are encouraged this morning by the spirit that dwells jealously within us to now return to God, to repent of our sins, to amend our lives in accordance with his word, to have a reformation of our, kind of our, the way that we live and do discipleship. And that's why every week we encourage you to come to the table. The table of our Lord where we eat and we drink of the grace that is poured out through the one who promises to give us a greater grace. A greater grace. And friends, when you come to this table, don't come thinking about your sins. Whatever sins those might be. Come thinking about his love. Come thinking about his goodness poured out on your sins and the forgiveness of those sins through Jesus Christ. Father, I, I pray now as we take a few moments together, O oh Lord, that your mercy would indeed be with us and that your help would indeed be given to us, O oh Lord. For we are sinners in need of your grace and of your mercy. I'm going to give us an opportunity to be quiet and let the Spirit do that work within us.
The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G.